If you've ever read a history book or gone to a history museum, you know that oftentimes they will show you a timeline of a certain period of time in history. And in that timeline, which is literally just a line with dates, there will be a little arrow or a line that attaches to a bubble. And in that bubble will be a picture. If it's a history museum, it'll be a picture of the artifact that you are currently looking at. And it's a reminder of where various things occur or come from in the history of mankind. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see that. Oftentimes, it is easy to forget as we study the epistles that these were little arrows and bubbles that pop out of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And that is true of the book that we began last week, First Timothy. As Paul did his ministry, as some of it is recorded in the book of Acts, we have times in where at certain places he wrote these various epistles. It wasn't at the end of his life or the beginning of his ministry where he just sat down and wrote to everyone. It was throughout his lifetime and ministry. And one of the insights that we have leading up to 1 Timothy was actually a prediction. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, the Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus with the newly founded Ephesian church, and he is about to leave. As he leaves, he says this to the elders of that church, Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Obviously, he's not talking about literal wolves that will come into the church and start eating people. He's talking about false teachers. He goes on and says, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He's talking about false teachers. He understood, of course, with the aid of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is something that would happen that people would see this one true religion worshiping the one true God and Savior, and they would come and they would want to try to attack it, pull people away, especially as the church grows and grows in influence and numbers. Others who are confused or are just wolves wanting to deceive and harm, they will come into the church and they will hurt the flock or at least try to with their false doctrine. This came true. And as we continue in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we will see that not only did it come true, it is such a problem that this is the primary reason that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Just last week, we began a new study in 1 Timothy. We find ourselves in the second sermon, the third and fourth verses of 1 Timothy, And today we start a three-week series called Warning False Teachers. Follow along as I read verses 3 and 4. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. This morning I want to give you a shorter outline, two dangers, two pervasive dangers of false teachers. Two pervasive dangers of false 
teachers. And the first danger is very basic but very important. And that is false teachers deviate from the standard of truth. False teachers deviate from the standard of truth. That may seem redundant because that is the definition of a false teacher. But let's look again at verses 3 through the beginning of verse 4. Let me read for you and stop where this point is going to stop. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. He has now begun after his first sentence, which is really an introduction to the letter saying hello to Timothy, as we saw last week. Now we are in the meat of the letter, and we learn right off the bat that the primary reason Paul left Timothy in Ephesus is to deal with the false teachers. And he says here that at one point, at the point where he was leaving, Paul was leaving for Macedonia, he had already encouraged him, urged him is the word he uses to do this, to deal with the false teachers, to stop teaching strange doctrines. That is what, how he is supposed to address the false teachers. Now, the significance of this task is seen in the word urge. Now, that Greek word that we have translated urge has a range of meanings. It can mean on the one end of the spectrum things like beg, implore, beseech. On the other end of the spectrum, but still having a similar idea, it can be translated summon, comfort, encourage. This specific word is used often in pastoral admonition in the pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles being First and Second Timothy and Titus, named as such because they are written to pastors for the sake of pastoral instruction. So this same word is used often by Paul. And let me read some of those for you, and you will see the context in which he uses such strong language. 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. He's saying, I urge you and urge you, Timothy, to teach the people in the church to pray. Titus 2.6, Urge the young men to be sensible. In Titus 2.5 and 2 Timothy 4.2, this Greek word is translated exhort. I'll read 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then in 1 Timothy 6.2, preach is the word for urge. Same Greek word translated preach, where he simply tells Timothy, teach and preach, or teach and urge these principles. Now, given those various uses of this word, whether it is an urging to do something good, such as prayers or being sensible, or used as a synonym for preaching or exhorting, we see a strong calling and responsibility indicated by this one seemingly simple word. And here, Paul shows, as we saw last week, both his authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus, as well as a personal aspect of his relationship with Timothy. He is, of course, also concerned about the purity of the church and gospel teaching. 
But let's look at the details of what Paul is urging Timothy to do. First, Timothy is to remain in Ephesus. We talked a lot about this last week. But the particular urging is seen in the so that of this verse. The purpose clause. Remain in Ephesus. Why? So that you can do such and such. And the such and such here is to, and I quote, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now the first thing that we see here is that there is some sort of interaction with Timothy and the false teachers, those who are teaching strange doctrines. As we saw in Acts, Paul said that it will be some of the people within the church that will rise up and teach these things and become wolves. These people Timothy is interacting with and will be able to instruct because they are in the church. They are not waiting across the street with flyers. They are not shouting from across the way into the church. They are in the church and they are influencing others. Now, when it comes to false teaching, we understand that we must be very firm. And Paul indicates this with the word instruct. Instruct them not to teach strange doctrines. This, in the Greek, was a military term. And it meant to give strict orders. Right away, you picture, even without having been in the military, although some of you have, you understand the strictness from television, movies, of a command, of a commanding officer, especially in the midst of battle. Now, generally speaking, this word instruct means to command, charge, instruct, direct. On a more general or larger scale, the use of this word by Paul, especially in the pastoral epistles, especially in this context, shows, as he will do over and over again, that the elders, the church leaders, have the authority to command others in the church. Paul has already done this himself. And in the rest of the book, he will continue to build upon the existence of this authority among church leaders, and we will see him use other strong words like this one that emphasize the elders' authority within the local church. We'll see this over and over again because, again, this is the whole point of the pastoral epistles, including 1 Timothy. Now, as you know, this does not mean that the people being commanded like what is being said. But, so long as it is biblical, the authority of the elders of the church must be recognized and followed. Undoubtedly, some of these men who are teaching strange doctrines will not like being corrected, but they are to follow the guidance of biblical elders because they are teaching and practicing the truth. And what we also see in this word, instruct, is that false teaching is not to be taken lightly. They are to be commanded to stop. You ever thought about why the commands of a training officer or a general are so strict and must be followed to the T. It's not just some power trip. It is to protect that soldier. It is to pro protect the battalion, to protect the army, to protect the country that they are defending. 
even if you don't get it, you better follow, because if you don't follow strictly and right away, your body parts may be all over this field in a few seconds. In similar fashion, false teaching is so serious and so dangerous that it not only hurts the one teaching it, but the congregation as a whole. And so we see why the Apostle Paul uses such a strong word, command them to stop teaching strange doctrines. Now as we move on through the verse, we aren't given any names of those who are doing this teaching. There are other places where names are mentioned by the Apostle Paul, but here we are just told that it is certain men. Now I've already alluded to the idea that these are most likely men from within the church. It is not that all those who are teaching in this church are teaching strange doctrines, but certain men. Some men are. Not all, but definitely more than one. There is also evidence in 1 Timothy to warrant that some of these men who are teaching strange doctrines are currently, at that time, elders in the church. This evidence would include the fact that they are teachers and have influence. Also, one of the most well-known passages in 1 Timothy is Paul elaborating on the qualifications of elders. This may have been to clear up any confusion of what an elder should look like in the church because of what is happening among some of the elders teaching false doctrine. Now, regardless of who these men are, they exist, and the church, especially the elders, are to correct them. But why exactly are they in need of correction or stopping? We see the answer to this in the rest of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. On the most basic level, they are teaching strange doctrines. The word strange is very important. If you have the ESV, it says different. The NIV says false. That whole phrase in English, teach strange doctrines, is actually one word in the Greek, and it means just that, to teach a different or false or other doctrine. But think about that, a different other or strange. The reason this is so important is that for something to be strange or different or false, there must be a standard of what is common or normal or true. You can't have something different if it's the only one. Different means there's something that is a standard that's agreed upon, and the different or strange or false disagrees with that standard. That, of course, in this context is the gospel of which we know that already in the early church there is an acceptance and understanding. And we know that the gospel and the apostles' teaching of and about the gospel was the standard by which all other teaching was evaluated and by which all other teaching should still be evaluated today, the Scriptures. One of the very clear lessons we learned in our multi-month study of James, is that how you behave 
is intimately connected with what you believe. This is drawn out as Paul elaborates on what this strange teaching entails. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So what was happening was that people were paying attention to or giving heed to these myths and genealogies. The phrase pay attention to could go so far as to mean to devote oneself to or even to be addicted And these stronger meanings are most likely what is happening in Ephesus, or at least what Paul is warning about. The believer is not to be preoccupied in any way with such wrong thinking and teaching. But what exactly are we talking about? Well, the myths refers to just that. Myths, fables, legends, fiction. This could include allegorical or mythical interpretations of the Old Testament. When this word is used in the New Testament, it simply refers to that which is untrue. By using this word, Paul is emphasizing that this teaching is untrue, even though to the Christians it may sound harmless because they are sprinkling in Old Testament passages. But The way they are teaching them, the way they are interpreting them, they are fairy tales. They are unreliable and untrustworthy and most importantly, contradict the gospel. Paul goes on and mentions genealogies. Genealogies back then are exactly what they are today. The tracing of someone's genetic or ancestral heritage Paying attention to genealogies would be simply finding out who your ancestors are or researching your family tree. Now, what Paul is warning against and prohibiting is not knowing about your family roots. That's fine. That's a good thing. It is not sin to want to know about your family lineage or even want to know more about your ancestry through ancestry DNA testing services like 23andMe. Just to clear the the air, that is not sinful. What Paul is addressing is a specific problem that is going on in the early church, especially among the Jews and possibly among the Jewish Christians. Now, at this point in the sermon is where I usually say this is exactly what he's talking about, but Paul doesn't elaborate any further, so we are not clear from this context about what all of this entails. However, Based on what we know from other epistles, other books of the Bible, as well as church and secular history, we can make a good, educated guess. What they are most likely teaching is a combination of Gnostic thinking, Paul calls it myths here, and the Jewish fascination with genealogies that kind of increased during this time, And we know historically that they were very involved with these types of things. Now, Gnosticism was prevalent at that time, and it was a big problem in the Christian church, especially as people blended Christian and Gnostic teaching together. Although you may not know exactly what it is, you've probably heard that phrase, Gnostic or Gnosticism, because it is addressed in many of the New New Testament epistles. Now, Gnosticism is, as one writer puts it, in trying to define it, he says, it is as easy to nail down as a flopping fish. 
Not only did it have various unclear teachings, but it also changed over time. So if you met someone who was a Gnostic today, it may be very different than what Paul was addressing. But what we do know back then, this is, let me give you the gist of it. Gnosticism first came about during the formation of the early church, and it continued to threaten the early church during the first three centuries. Some would actually say that it was the most dangerous heresy that the early church faced during that time, and it gained a lot of steam because behind it were very powerful men such as the philosopher Plato. Now, one of their main beliefs has to do with its name. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. Gnostics claimed to possess a higher form of knowledge or spiritual enlightenment. Keep in mind, this was pervading the church. So kind of think of how a Christian would view this. This knowledge, they claimed, would elevate them above everyone else because they had a higher or deeper knowledge, not of philosophy, but of God. We all want that, don't we? For them, though, this special or mystical knowledge was the means of salvation. They also held to a distinct division between the material and spiritual. They taught that all physical matter is inherently evil and all spiritual things are good. This, in turn, led them to teach that nothing you do in and with your physical body matters because real life is only in the spiritual or the spiritual realm. You take these two core beliefs together and you have a belief that true salvation is gained through acquiring this higher knowledge which includes understanding that everything physical is evil and if you want good, go to the spiritual because that knowledge frees people from the illusion of darkness and evil in this world. To put it another way, this was a religion of self-redemption. We know that salvation is through Jesus Christ, and the spirit of man is wicked and evil, thus needing a Savior. But you can see how this false teaching would appeal to people in a world where salvation was sought after and human knowledge and philosophy was headed toward the Greek golden age of philosophy. And so you had Gnosticism. The genealogies part of this involved the well-documented interest in family trees among the Jews of that time, which what they were specifically were doing was trying to trace their individual. So a person would try to trace their individual lineage and connect it to one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Thus saying, well, see, I'm a descendant of so-and-so, so that makes me special. And this caused some of the tensions between Jews and Jewish Christians back then because the Jewish Christians looked to Christ and Judaism looked to tribal ancestry. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who was converted from strict uh, Judaism, addresses this tension in Philippians chapter 3 when he lists out the purity and height of his Jewish pedigree, then says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He is addressing this very view and pursuit among the Jews and possibly some of the Jewish Christians. All of that doesn't matter anymore. 
a Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin. None of that matters because I have Christ. And so right there in Philippians 3, you see the tension Paul addressing in his own life or what people could see in his life and say it's all Christ. But again, if the Jews were pushing their pedigree, then you can see why there's tension and the Jewish Christians are like, stop it, mom. And you know, oh, he said, oh, really? We're descending. You know what? Stop. Stop. It's in Christ. So you can see the temptation and the tension there. Now back to 1 Timothy. You see that Paul defines the genealogies as endless. This simply highlights the fact that there is no limit to untruth because unlike truth, it has no bounds. We have limits on the pages of scriptures, but untruth, fairy tales, you can go as far as you want. That's why every year you can find new children's books because there's more imagination, more fairy tales that can be created. The gospel, on the other hand, is bound to the pages of Scripture. I often use this principle when counseling those who struggle with worry or anxiety. The idea is it can be endless. If you're going to let your mind go wild about all the what-ifs of life, it is endless. Why stop at your greatest fears? If you are worried that your child is lying to you with no basis for your worries, why stop there? Why not worry that they're also stealing from your purse or bullying other kids at school? If you are worried that your children will get kidnapped if they go to the store alone, why stop there? Why not worry that they'll actually be taken and brainwashed by an Islamic fundamentalist, join his harem, and become, become a Christ and America-hating terrorist? By the way, as crazy as that sounds, I have personal connections with people who have experienced both of those things. So if experience is what you're going to go by, then sure, why not worry about that as well? So, if you're going to have one thought that is outside the boundaries of truth, then why not go further? It is endless. And that's what Paul is saying about false teaching. You go beyond the, beyond the bounds of gospel and gospel preaching, then there's no limit. Why just genealogies? Why not a different heaven for those who follow Judaism? Why not a greater knowledge? Why not knowledge to the point that you actually become a God? You can just go on and on and on. And we have seen this since the time of the early church, the types of things that people come up with in their false religions and cults and the people who believe them, follow them, give everything, even mass suicide, to these beliefs. There is no end. I want you to keep in mind that any, no matter how small, any twist, removal, or addition of the, to the gospel is a contradiction of the gospel because of the very specific salvific act within the gospel. For example, someone can, and some, some of you have experienced this, someone can tell you that yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is fully man. He is fully God. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. Yet they tell you that you have to be good enough to access or keep that salvation that he purchased for you that is added, adding to the gospel. It is heresy. 
It is, in fact, not the gospel. The same could be said of anything that takes away aspects of the gospel, such as his physical death, physical humanity, or the deity of Christ. These are ideas that we are not to focus on or entertain. Because even a simple what if can snowball into wrong thinking that relies on falsities and human pedigree to calm anxieties about security of salvation and going to heaven. And just as the culture of the day with the combo of Greek philosophy and Judaism created these problems, so we too can fall prey to the same type of pressures from the world today, including views and trends within evangelicalism. We see this all across America with the godless blending of social movements and gospel teaching. It leads to a twisting of what love is, often redefining and replacing biblical love with the ideas of self-confidence, tolerance, and respect. When it comes to false teachers within the church, they are to be corrected and stopped. And if they don't, they are to be put out. Not only is the content of the false teaching a problem, but also what they do, the false teachings, in the lives of those who teach or follow them. And Paul tells us what that is in our next point. We're looking at two pervasive dangers of false teachers. We have seen false teachers deviate from the standard of truth. Secondly, false teachers deter from the stewardship of truth. False teachers deter from the stewardship of truth. Look at the end of verse 4, talking about strange doctrines, myths, and genealogies. They give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul explains that the false teaching results in a preoccupation with something that is not just wrong, but also hinders our biblical ministry. One of the descriptions of the Ephesian heresy is this word speculation, as opposed to the result of true Christian teaching, which results in furthering the administration of God. Speculation, useless speculation, is a word that means questioning or senseless speculation. It can, talk, it can refer to controversies and arguments. And this last phrase is why false teaching and its accompanying speculations are to be avoided and stopped, because they hinder and interfere with the execution of God's ministry and God-given ministry. And that's what administration means. That word administration in the Greek originally referred to the work performed by a steward or manager. And here it refers to the task and responsibility, the stewardship given by God to the Apostle Paul, as well as all believers, but especially elders in the church. False teachers, by nature of what they teach, do not carry out the fulfillment of right doctrine of which we are stewards. But the greater problem is that they keep others from their stewardship in the church. And notice This stewardship only takes place through genuine faith in Christ, which leads to genuine faithfulness to Christ. For us, 
It may not be Gnosticism or genealogical connections to ancient heroes of the faith, but there are many views that come into the church. Some creep in, others parade in with much pomp and circumstance, such that we can't help but notice or even be drawn in. As a Christian, it would be wise to ask yourself, what category of wrong teaching are you more prone to follow and why? What kind of instruction baits you into the allures of speculative thinking? It may not be complete heresy, but when we work backwards from this practical result of hindering the administration of God, hindering your ministry, if you start there and work backwards, maybe you can think about what it is what wrong thinking you might have about the Bible that keeps you from serving more. Maybe it's a wrong view of the local body, a weak view of fellowship, a worldly view of money, a wanting to be a teacher but not following what you teach. All of these wrong views, whether taught to us or just followed in your own mind, keep us from the administration of God. We don't serve, we don't fellowship, we don't give. And look at this passage. Look at the whole sentence again. Verses 3 and 4 are one sentence. So we can see the flow and logic and all the nuances and connections, keeping in mind that we are highlighting two pervasive dangers of false teachers. It says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And the two dangers of false teachers that we saw are that they deviate from the standard of truth and that they deter from the stewardship of the truth. Over the years, I have had the privilege of taking my family to several fun and exciting destinations on family holiday. And more than one of the places where we have stayed have very kind employees They call them concierges. They help you book excursions or inform you of all that their city has to offer. They're all very helpful and always very kind, and you can see how certain personalities are put by management into this role in the hotel. It is that helpfulness and kindness that is often the bait for their other assignment at the hotel to get you into a timeshare presentation. Oh, these are all the things you can do, but they're very expensive, but I can give them to you for free. And in fact, I'll give you a free breakfast if you just sit through this one-hour presentation and you'll get hundreds of dollars of free stuff. By God's grace, and I don't mean that facetiously, I have never sat in on one of those presentations. I avoid them like the plague in large part because every person that I've ever spoken to that owns a timeshare talks about their timeshare in the same way I would imagine a convict talks about prison. They want out. 
They don't want to be there, but since they're stuck, they're going to make the best of it. Well, even in this room, I know of people who have offered to give me for free ownership of their timeshare just to be liberated from the burden and expense. Now, you're all laughing because you know this is true and you know about these presentations. But people still join them. They still exist. And I believe there are several reasons people join these presentations and they are also connected to reasons why people follow false teachers. The first reason I believe people join these timeshare presentations is simply because they are naive. And I don't mean that in a condescending or negative way. They simply don't know what they're getting into. Often they're not even told exactly what the presentation is. They're just told that they're going to get free breakfast and a few hundred dollars in their pocket to sit through a small presentation. Who wouldn't want that? That's one of the reasons, though, many believe false teachers. They simply don't know the truth. They hear Scripture presented. They hear the word church. Their leader is called a pastor. The pastor has elders. Hey, it sounds the same. And say they don't know. They don't understand. Many follow errant doctrine because that's all they've known. Some of you were like this for many years. They were raised in that religion. That was the false religion their parents raised them in. Or when they got saved, that church believed false doctrine. Others knew the truth but are tempted by the offer. And there are simple, a couple simple ways to help with the naivete that leads some to follow false teachers. First, we need to remember a simple principle. Check the Scriptures. We need to study the Scriptures, and we need to make sure that what we are taught aligns with the Scriptures. And if anyone, including me, says anything that you think, hmm, I don't know if that sounds right according to what I know about the Bible, then don't ask me, go back to the Bible. Check the Scriptures. Secondly, those of us who are not naive, we must teach those that are. And I don't mean necessarily going out and joining the cults, gatherings and teaching and preaching. We need to start here. If there are people who have wrong doctrine here, graciously, lovingly teach them. Because I truly believe that's what Paul is saying. He's not dropping the hammer yet. He's saying there are people who are here who don't know the early church, Christianity, was still considered a cult back then because it was so new and small. Some people don't know. So you've got you to gotta correct them, Timothy. You've got to correct them firmly. Don't be like, nah, they'll get it. I'll keep teaching. They'll come around. I'm not the Holy Spirit. No, if it's false teaching, it must be addressed. But again, if it turns out they are actually wolves and refuse to change and stop, and repent, they must be put out. But it is that first scenario that I'm talking about here. We must encourage people. We must help them to see the truth. This is to encourage people to, on a very simple level, don't just come and leave. Don't just have conversations. How are you doing? How's work? Did you get that job? Are you moving to Texas? All of those questions that we hear all the time. Yes, including that last one. But... We must say, what do you think of the sermon? Is there something you learned? Were you confused? Hey, we have four small groups now. Please join. 
all of you, join. Because there's more days and more leaders. We can have five, six, whatever it is. Hey, you don't have time for a small group? You want to have a coffee? Maybe I can explain to you what Roger was saying. Maybe I can explain to you what this doctrine is. Maybe I can explain to you what this is that you are confused about. People are naive and we need to help. Now that is the first reason people join timeshare presentations. Another is simply or similar to being naive. It's that they believe they can reap the benefits without the commitment. One hour in exchange for hundreds of dollars and a free breakfast, it's not going to take away from my vacation at all. I'm in. Now, I don't know about you, but when people ask my wife and I, and we were just talking about this last night, and we're in, in agreement. You get, find people that have the same travel style as you. Otherwise, you'll become enemies. But anyways, we, all, we both agree that you know, people ask us, Oh, welcome back. Were you able to rest and relax on your vacation? My answer is always no, because that's not why we go on vacation. I go on vacation, yes, to get away from work, but so I can run and swim with my boys, drive around streets I've never seen before, seeing the sights, looking for some random store or restaurant that I read about online. I come back from vacation more tired than when I left, and that's the point to be actively and exhaustively engaged with my family. I can sleep here. I can read a book on a beach here. I do not need to pay for a flight in a hotel to do that. But that also means that every minute counts because that time on vacation is limited and precious. I definitely don't want to sit through an hour presentation when I can be spending that hour playing shark in the pool with my kids or buying them some unique junk knick-knack at the local outdoor market. But, let's be honest, there is a cost-benefit analysis there. And if you're telling me that just an hour of my time, possibly before my kids are even awake, will give me $1,000 of excursions, then I'm in. But, it's never just an hour. In fact, the last place we stayed at a, f- a few weeks ago, I read reviews that the 45-minute presentation, these guys were stuck three, four, five hours there. They were baited by the promise of fast cash and VIP treatment. Well, he said it's only an hour. Well, yeah, maybe the actual presentation itself But there's the waiting for the presentation begin. Oh, the Smiths aren't here yet. Let's wait till they come. The icebreakers, the introductions, the breakfast. Then the, indeed, one-hour presentation, but followed by a mandatory one-on-one sitting at the table with one of the salespeople. The coaxing, the pressure, the brochures, the tour. Then, when the one hour has become three, you're ready to walk out and say, forget about the vouchers, and they say, okay, okay, we'll get you those vouchers. We promised, and of course, that too takes forever. There's some sort of problem. Well, while they get the manager's signature, let me show you this unit that we have. When it comes to false teaching, what is it for you? What is the allure? What is the promise that draws you in? Maybe it is the promise of money or keeping your money. I have met many who were specifically taught 
that though they were working, because they are young and single, they don't need to give to the church. That's a very alluring false doctrine. Maybe it's recognition or popularity. The promises of rising up the ranks into the upper echelons of that religion, the mystery religions, the places where only the leaders know, only the highest leaders of Scientology and Tom Cruise know what goes on in those meetings. This is true of the Mormons. This is true of many of the major cults. You'll get special treatment and respect from the rest of the church, even if it's just volunteering for some special activity they're doing at Christmas time. Maybe, and I think this is more it for many of us, maybe it's the guarantee that you don't have to change your worldview. No sacrificing, no giving, no ministry exhaustion here. No call to be politically incorrect. You want to prioritize school and success for your kids rather than God? Join us. You want to just live stream and never let others in the church get into your life? We're the church for you. You want to party on weekends and sleep around before marriage? Hey, all our young people here do it. You want to submit to your wife, lead your husband? You can have that. Just come as you are and stay as you are. Whatever you are promised, know that there's much more you will sacrifice than the seemingly innocuous one-hour presentation. Those concierges inviting you to the timeshare presentation, they know that most of us know. They know that many will attend thinking they will play the game, get some free stuff, and then leave. But if they know that's how we think, that the cat's out of the bag, why do they still relentlessly invite every guest of that hotel? Why do you think that is? It's because no matter how much people are sure they will say no, enough still buy the timeshare. Be careful. Be careful of false doctrine because this is true there as well. Some go because they think it will be a good stepping stone for their unbelieving friend. They go somewhere where sin isn't preached and the rock band is loud. So ease them into church, but if they accept that, do you really think they will eventually come here? Others are willing to compromise what they believe just on Friday nights to meet Christian singles at other churches. They like their outings, or maybe they just like the people there more. They're more fun. Come here for the teaching, go there for the fun. It could be the music. It could be a family member. Whatever it is, over time, you will find that you can't just keep reaping the benefits without the commitment because the benefits will eventually make you want to commit. Be careful of what allures you. Finally, I believe there are some who go to timeshare presentations because they are genuinely interested in buying a timeshare. They think having a timeshare will streamline their vacation planning. I know friends, or one couple in particular, said they like it because it forces them to go on vacation every year when work or frugality would otherwise make them choose not to. So they jump in and buy. 
But it's not until they buy, because already, let's face it, after a four-hour presentation that was supposed to be 45 minutes, you're not going to read the fine print. But after they buy, they start seeing the hidden costs, the annual fees, the transaction charges, the maintenance fees. Yes, there are property taxes because you technically own it. And because you own it, just like as some of you have faced with your HOA, they decide to revamp the whole garden in your complex, you all get a special assessment that you have to pay. Those special assessments are involved in timeshares as well. That resort wants to remodel, you're going to pay for it. Did you know? And this shows you how bad it is, how badly people want out. There are timeshare exit companies that help you find a buyer for your timeshare. And you think it's just like a real estate agent. They're free. They take a commission, but I don't pay them. You do for the timeshare exit companies, and the fee is between $2,500 and $15,000 that people are willing to pay for the service to get rid of their timeshare. Now, talking about fine print, some of the timeshares have an option where the resort will actually take it back from you. And so people, for whatever reason, they don't want the timeshare, they get on the phone, they are connected with that specific department right there. Look, you know, when you've tried to cut out, quit your Comcast, you know, when they take you to that special department, they're going to try to sell you. So they're talking on the phone, well, why don't you want the timeshare? Well, we've had kids, it's grown, it's not. And believe it or not, many of these people trying to sell back their timeshare resort are convinced not to sell, but to upgrade. So not only have they not gotten rid of their timeshare, they now own a bigger, more expensive one. In the same way, there are Christians who, for whatever reason, are looking for a different religion or a different church or a different doctrine. Many of you, I would say half in our church, were so discouraged by your last church, where they were going in terms of the world and liberal teaching, that you sought out a more biblical one, and I hope you understand that was God's grace. Because I know people who were in your exact same situation. Conservative churches, they didn't like where their church was going, their weakening church. And it was so free, so much grace, that they sought out structure. And they turned to the Orthodox or Catholic church. This again goes back to seeing false teaching for what it is. Yes, there is sacrifice and suffering with the true gospel. But if you don't see the joy in what God is doing and allowing in your life for His glory, then you are going to be way more susceptible to the myths and genealogies of our age. As I was researching timeshares, no, I didn't just know all that stuff. I found a website, this is how bad it is, for a timeshare attorney for people trying to get out of a timeshare. The resort won't let them, so they hire an attorney. 
Now, granted, everything on their website is trying to feed their own business, so it's going to be a little exaggerated. But they had a list of the top eight hidden costs of timeshares. Number one was your life. Number two was your freedom. And as dramatic and as self-serving as that is in regard to a timeshare attorney, we know that those top two hidden costs, your life and your freedom, are very true when it comes to false teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that by your grace you have shown us the truth. Thank you that we live in a time and in a country and where we can have the completed canon of Scripture in different translations, different languages, different devices on our laps. And Father, help us to know and study the truth. Thank you for protecting our church over these last 12 years from false teachers. I pray that you will continue to do so. And when it comes to those who are straying or curious or just naive, may we be a people who graciously and lovingly and humbly confront and address and teach and help. As you see fit to grow our church in numbers, Lord, I pray that you would convict everyone who comes to this church to not just come and listen and leave, but to get involved, to know people, to join a group, to build relationships so that we can further strengthen this human wall against false teaching and the teachings that may creep in. Guard us individually from falling prey to the allures, the worldly allures of churches and religions that do not teach the truth. Help us to stand firm no matter what the cost is, whether it's physical, financial, relational, marital. Help us to stand firm on your truth. Give us the grace and strength to do so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.